of Scripture uh, and also the, the context of uh, this particular paragraph is to realize what was going on during the time in which the confession writers were writing. Uh, we don't often think about this uh, as much, but during the time of the writing of the confession, the confession uh, was being used as a means of counteracting the doctrines that were still so prevalent and still so easily swaying people. Uh, if, if any of you know about the, the Reformation itself, then you realize that the Reformation was, was more than just a rebellion. Um, there are, sadly, uh, some who teach that the Reformation was a rebellion, and there are, there are Baptist churches who have separated themselves away from the Reformation because they don't want to be labeled as Protestant, and because the word Protestant encompasses many different denominations. We'll use that term this morning. Uh, but the Reformation was really a, a rejection of the Roman Catholic doctrines that were being taught. It was a desire to correct what was wrong. What ultimately ended up happening with individuals such as Luther is there had to be, there ended up being a removal because the, the, the Catholic Church itself was not going to move off of these things in which they have, had now so deeply entrenched into their traditional church. This, is, this paragraph deals with one of those doctrines that is, it has nearly disappeared uh, from the vocabulary of our modern generation. Um, now, it's not something that if you did not know about this today, that this would change your life somehow, that you're going to walk out of here today and say, wow, that, what we learned today about this big new word has now changed my life. It's not going to change your life. But it is going to give you, an, it's going to show you something about why there was such a rejection of what was going on. And the, and the confession writers believed scripturally that what the church, the Catholic church was teaching about this was certainly wrong. You see there in paragraph four, it says, they who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to super arrogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. This is a very short paragraph, and it deals with the reality of this word supererogation, not irrigation, irrigation. And it is this principle or this concept, and the, even the, the dictionary defines this word as to do more than is required or expected. So in a nutshell, the Catholic Church believed that it was possible for a person to not only attain the highest of good that the person could do, but that they could do beyond what God expected. So in other words, it would be possible for their saints to say, we not only have done what God has told us to do, but we have gone not only reached that standard, but we have gone above that standard. We have reached a standard that is beyond what God has expected us to do. It, it also means, in the dictionary, it also says literally to pay back above and or beyond what one owes. So now think about this. Now you have this idea that not only can I reach God's standard, but I can exceed God's standard of what he requires. And I can actually pay back what I owe. Now that's a frightening thought. 
Because now you've got humanity who is saying that I can not only reach God's standard, I can not only reach the standard of God's perfection, but I can actually go above and beyond it. The Catholic Church took it one step further that they said if you were one of those individuals who could reach it and go beyond, you had excess good works that you could spread around and share with others. Was it that convenient? Now, this doctrine is something that many people, unless you've been exposed to the Catholic Church, uh, maybe you weren't even familiar with. It may be something that's brand new to you today. And the point is, is to deal with the counteraction of this, not to deal with the subject of all the ways in which the Catholic Church uh, believes and enforces this doctrine. Uh, but we do want to just understand that what this is paragraph primarily, I've entitled this paragraph this morning or this lesson simply the limitations of good works. Uh, there are limits to our good works as, as it relates to mankind. And remember, this is paragraph four, so we've been dealing with a number of different what good works are, how good works are performed. We learned last week that the good works are not even those performed by ourselves so much as is God working through us. And that we could even have the wrong motives. We could have the wrong intentions. We could say we're doing good works and our good works may be framed in the wrong, uh, the, the, the wrong circumstances. So there's the paragraph for you. So they're kind of over uh, outlining that. So really there's three things we're going to talk about today. And you see, first of all, is that the paragraph, paragraph four, is against this idea of supererogation. And summarize, saints who do all that God expects and more store up merit. That's kind of the quick, quick snap way to actually say, okay, what does that word mean? Basically, think about it in the terms of, I can store up more merit. And now we know that none of us has any merit before God in our own righteousness. We know that there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing I can do. I can't even earn a single merit. But they would believe that they're not only earning merit, they actually earn the full merit plus extra credit, to put it, to put it simply and maybe crudely. Okay? So that, th this paragraph was intentionally written to counteract this idea of supererogation. Now you'll notice when we go through this confession study, and you'll notice when we get to chapters and we get to certain points and paragraphs, you will see that the confession writers were really truly dealing with the reality of the influence of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was still had a hold on many, many people, and there were still people struggling with the realities of what those false doctrines had taken hold of. It is not a rumor, it is actually true that the confession writers and in the confession actually blatantly call out and name the Pope the Antichrist. It's clear as day. It, 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 they don't make any mistake about it. They say this is the Antichrist. This, this is the very picture of the Antichrist. And the, one of the main reasons they did that is because of the belief that the Pope can actually intercede on behalf of people and act in a role, almost in a sense, of atoning and granting them forgiveness and granting them entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, that's not a popular view today. But during the time in which the confession writers wrote this, this would have been, there would have been such a tension between the Catholic Church and the church which was trying to stand for Bible truth. We don't hear a lot about that today just because of the nature of what uh, our society is. But secondly, the good works of the most holy saints 
And I mean holy saints by how outwardly. We know that we're, if we're actually in Christ, we are all considered holy, even though our actions don't always line up. Holy is a, it's a, it's a title given to us. But even the best of us is still stained with sin, and we fall short of God's perfect standards. So even if you are the picture of outward holiness, you're still stained with sin, and you're still falling short. You're, you're still, there are still issues with you. There's still issues with me. Galatians 5 talks about being led of the Spirit and doing the things that we wouldn't do and still, still subject to that old flesh. That fleshly nature is still within us. First uh, John 1, one of the references that's mentioned up there, First John 1, uh, verses 6 through 10, reminds us of some of these truths and we are familiar with this if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness we lie and do not the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He's not just talking about before we were converted. He's talking about if we say right now we don't have sin, then we, are, we make God a liar. And we are, we are basically saying that what the word of God declares about us is not true. So we certainly know that we have not arrived to the place where we can say, I do not have any of these issues. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, back to the Old Testament. Of course, Ecclesiastes penned by Solomon, the man who prayed for wisdom and received it, although he still continued to struggle uh, with the vanity of life and uh, I think a lot of us could relate to Solomon and his quest in this life, his quest uh, to find the meaning of everything. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So think about that for a minute. There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So that teaches us already that even our good works are stained with sin. This, this idea that we can somehow, in order for the, the Catholic teaching of that, that, that supererogation to take place, would mean you are telling me, you are declaring that you are without sin. That's the only way you could reach merit. That's the only way you could reach that standard because God's standard is perfect righteousness. It's perfect holiness. So the Catholic Church, whether they would ever come out and say it or not, is telling you that there are people who have reached sinless perfection. And that not only have they reached it, they're so good that they've gone above and beyond that they're so good they can share it with you. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a fully aware enough of how you go about grabbing on to someone who's reached this standard's leftover or extra merit. I don't know enough about it. But I do know that there are those who truly believe they have reached sinless perfection. Psalm 130 is a, an absolute beautiful psalm. 
But it's a psalm. It's a psalm that's a song of degrees. And the, the psalmist is writing about the very first words of that verse are, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. There's a, there's a song in the Psalter that talks about the waiting on the Lord. Out of the depths I cry unto you. But in verse 3, the psalmist says this, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. Now watch this. O Lord, who shall stand? If the Lord decided, I'm going to mark every single one of you for your iniquities, and that mark is going to determine that you are no longer in the family of God, who would stand? Absolutely no one. If God absolutely held the standard and just took us for what we are and did not look at Christ's righteousness, nobody would stand. We would all fall. This market of iniquities, this is so important to understand what's happening here. And again, we're not doing this to be hate-filled. But this, this doctrine is dangerous on a lot of different levels. And I want you to think about that when we get to the theology matters at the end. Why is this so dangerous to think we can, we can reach this? So number three, the Roman, doc, the Roman Catholic doctrine implies that believers can do more than God requires of them. Now, I don't know about you. But I'm having a hard time in my own life just doing the basics of what God requires of me. I'm having a real hard time some days. Some days I'm just outright rebellious and stubborn and I don't want to do anything God tells me to do. I'm having a real hard time with that from time to time. Why is that? Because I'm battling with the flesh that the Apostle Paul said. You're, you're going to battle with this flesh all of your life until you reach glory. That's what's going to happen to you. But this falsely teaches that there is more to do than is what is revealed in the Scriptures. Okay, so we saw that in the paragraph. That also points us to one of the main texts out of that paragraph is Luke chapter 17. And until we were doing this confession study, I have to be honest, I never saw this passage in the light in which the confession writers wrote about this, talking about being more than what is required and then what God's standard is. So Luke 17 is, is loaded with a lot of different things. We have the Lord's teaching on forgiveness. We have the Lord's teaching on uh, the lepers that were healed. And we also have at the end of the chapter, he's teaching about the kingdom that is coming. So what I want to do is I want to read the, I want to read the first 10 verses. So we're going to tie uh, the forgiveness that Christ talks about into what he's talking about this doing more than what's revealed than what the actual standard is. It says in verse 1, Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones, that, or in other words, to cause another one, another person to sin. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day, turn again to thee saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Those verses are extremely tough for us to live, are they not? <laughs> Just forgiving people who offend us is a real struggle for everyone in this room. Let's go on. And the apostle said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Why were they asking for an increase in faith? Because they knew how difficult this was. 
You want me to repent or receive the repentance of a person who offends me seven times? What if they do the same thing seven times? Then repent, then forgive them seven times. Peter took that to one further extreme in another passage and says, so you're saying I should, how many times should I forgive them? 490 times? That's what's required and even keep going beyond that. Even in our natural man, just to grant forgiveness to a person who stands before us and says, I repent, I'm sorry I offended you, we all have limits. Most of us are one-time limits. If you do me wrong, you repent of it, I'll forgive you once. Go beyond once, I'm not forgiving you again. Now, how many times in, in reality does Christ have to forgive us? Over and over and over again. And even if we're not sinning actively right now, he's still forgiving us. Because sin is what we are. Total depravity from the head, from the, the head, the top of our head, the crown of our head, to the soles of our feet. There's not a part of you that sin is not infiltrated. So the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. Now notice his response. If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto the sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Now, I'm not, we can't even get into the exposition of that. That's a whole message in and of itself. But, but notice what he says here. He goes on in the same context of the same conversation about forgiveness. But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant? Look at this. Because he did the things that were commanded him? Does, does he owe the servant a thank you for doing what was required of him? You know, on a side application note, there are people who go to work every day and do what they're told to do and do what they're supposed to do and think because they don't get an additional thanks for doing what they were supposed to do that something's wrong with the employer. There's a requirement, right? There's a requirement of what you are required to do. And the Lord is giving a perfect illustration here. He said, if that servant's doing what he's commanded to do, should, he, should there be a thank? A thanksgiving given. He says, doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not, or I think not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things, look at this, which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. He said, even if you've done it all, you are still nothing more than an unprofitable servant, truly. The problem is, we haven't even done it all. So can we really say that I've earned enough merit that I can just spread the wealth around? The idea of this is the point of what Jesus was trying to teach and what, what he was trying to get across. Jesus as giving that illustration of the servant is saying this, do you think that I'm indebted to the servant for anything? Christ is not in debt to you and I for anything that we do. 
Have you heard people over the years preach like they're God's greatest gift to ministry? And they preach as if, you know what, if I wasn't the teacher, if I wasn't the preacher, you wouldn't get this, that God has so blessed me so eloquently that you wouldn't get this, that I'm somehow a prophet, that I make Christ indebted to me. Christ is not in debt to me in any way, shape, or form. If I did good works from the time I got up this morning to the time I go to bed tonight, he still wouldn't be in debt to me. If I lived 100 years and I did nothing but good works, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, all the rest of my life, I would still not have him in debt to me. To even suggest that I can meet the standard of what I'm required to do and go above that standard the way the Roman Catholic Church teaches, it's a travesty. Because if that's true, Christ is in debt to that person. Because you have now made Christ, his entire sacrifice, unnecessary because you've already exceeded the righteousness required. I would not have to go to Christ to get to the Father. The implications of this false doctrine are deep because it removes Christ from the picture. I don't need him to get access to the Father anymore because I've already met the Father's standard. And there's a real convicting challenge in this thinking Does Christ ever owe me a thanks for anything? No, he doesn't. Even if you're the holiest of all saints, he still is never indebted to you or I. Whatever we do, even though you might do something, I might do something, we can never equate that to saying, I I am his servant, and I do Much more. I do so much more that I even go beyond what's revealed in the scriptures. So the illustrations there are very, very strong. So we need to keep in mind that even the greatest of the the good works of the most holy saints are still stained with sin and fall short of God's perfect standards. So explanation, we've already kind of talked about this. Paragraph 4 was specifically written to counteract the Roman Catholic Church, which taught the saints could accumulate more good works than they personally needed. These good works could then be accumulated and used on behalf of others. As we've learned, this is unscriptural and completely false because all of our works, number one, are stained with sin. Two, the work of, of merit and supererogation presupposes perfection. And then third, the norm of good works is nothing more than God's word alone. So what God's word says about works is all that is required and all that I need. Now, if, if I could reach all of what was required in scripture, then I would have some sort of an argument. But I can't. So I can't reach all of those standards. Most people would not think of forgiveness as a good work. We've mentioned this. There are people running and bustling all over church houses all over this country who are serving in every ministry, every program that church has. And they're not forgiving their spouse. They're not forgiving their children. They're not forgiving one another. And they say, but look at all the stuff I'm doing for the church. And they might not say it. They may not say I'm doing this and I'm earning points with God. And they may never use the term super arrogation. But if you think that part of that is not still part of our daily thinking, you're not being honest with yourself. You say, I've never been Roman Catholic in all my life. You don't have to be. 
The nature of taking credit for good works is already implanted in you by your sin nature. We truly do believe that we offer God something that he needs. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need our gifts. He commands us to use them. But he's not saying, look, if that little church on Petrie Road doesn't get its act together, we're going to lose the whole town. We're going to lose the whole, whole city and town of Springfield. And if, if they don't really get it together and, and gather more sheep into the flock, we're going to lose all Clark County. This is an absolute privilege. This is an absolute privilege to be able to stand and be part of a local church that is trying to stand for the truth, not to gain merit, not to gain any sort of pat on the back from the Lord who is never indebted to us. But rather, it is a means of our thanksgiving to God that he doesn't mark our iniquities. Why would I be so concerned about having more good works than I could possibly get? Other than that's just the arrogant pride of our sin nature continuing to rise up. So there is an implication there. So these limitations are that it teaches us our duty is to do all God commands in his work. So it's impossible to do more than that. So the commandment is there, not that we shouldn't do things, not that we shouldn't do good works, but God's requirement is do all that my word commands. I didn't realize until I was years removed from Baptist doctrine that wasn't truly biblical doctrine, that was tradition doctrine in Baptist churches about all the good things I was supposed to be doing that there was no biblical basis for. Most of the things that I felt guilty about were things that were above and beyond what God commanded. Think about that for a moment. If you don't serve here, you really need to get your heart right with God. If you don't do this, your heart just isn't in this. Your heart isn't right. Sadly, there are churches that are so built upon the concept, not the, not the actual definition of super arrogation. Not, they're not actually, they don't believe that they actually can reach that, and they don't believe that they can go beyond it, but they're putting a weight on the good works, indicating that as I do good works, I am somehow gaining more and more favor with God. And yet, that was not a coincidence that in Luke 17, that that was connected to the conversation the Lord was having about forgiveness. People talk often about what splits churches right down the middle. Most churches don't split because of doctrine. Most, people, most churches split because of a lack of forgiveness. It's the number one reason churches close. It's not because of doctrine. Most people... Most churches, unfortunately, who have those type of problems, the doctrine's not solid enough to hold them. The doctrine is, and, and there's a movement in our modern church today, and, and I've, I've had somebody in this church tell me, they were having a conversation with somebody who said, doctrine's just really not that important. We just need Jesus. You can't know the true Jesus without doctrine. So when you see a person say, we, we don't need any, just give me Jesus, it sounds 
very spiritual. It sounds very holy. It sounds like, now there's a church that's got its act together. They don't, they're not concerned about anything but Jesus. But if that Jesus is not based on solid doctrine, then there's going to be a problem with it. Lack of forgiveness, and I'm not talking about just lack of forgiveness among church people. I'm talking about lack of forgiveness in families. Folks, we don't realize the devastation. We do not realize the devastation that is caused when we don't forgive in our own families and how that, that whole concept infiltrates everywhere you go. It infiltrates your church. It infiltrates your workplace. Lack of forgiveness doesn't just affect you and the person you're not forgiving. It affects everyone around you. The bitterness that arises out of lack of forgiveness causes these things to happen. And yet Jesus is talking about a plow, a plower and a servant. But he begins a conversation by saying, what about forgiveness? Teaches us a little bit about what these good works are. The idea that we can exceed God's requirements of us implies God recognizes the standard of good higher than and beyond himself and his word. There is no standard of righteousness that you can meet that exceeds what God requires. What God requires is a perfect sinless sacrifice, and that's what Jesus Christ did when he accomplished your salvation. He already satisfied the demands of a holy God. You can't go beyond what the requirement is. So the implication that there is some good work which God does not command or require is impossible and it violates the biblical teaching on the norm of good works. Part of this now, if we go back to the Catholic Church, somebody, I've had conversations over the years. People ask me and they say, in your experience, is the Catholic Church biblical? And it really depends on, and I'm saying that with a caveat, when I'm saying biblical, I don't mean that they follow the Bible. I'm saying what they mean is, is that they say that their teaching is based on the Bible. That's a, that's a real quandary. Because if you talk to some, they will say, yes, that parish or that particular place, they say they stand on the Bible. But most others tell me that it comes out of their books of tradition is what the primary governing books of the Catholic Church are. So if you try to get into a conversation with a Catholic and saying, listen, where does the Bible teach about supererogation? They may not have an answer for you, but they will say something in the Catholic documents actually teach them about it. Remember, that's why I've told us that even though we're confessionally reformed, which means a reformed Baptist church that has a confession of faith as its guiding principles of what we believe, but that is never, ever, ever to supersede the scripture. And that if we come in conflict with what the Bible says and the confessions butt heads, we're going to take the Bible's position, not the confession of faith. That can end up being a dangerous doctrine. Now, the writers of the confession, if you read the history of it and of those who came together to write this and put it together, there certainly was good intentions. And there were good motives. And I do believe they sat down with Scripture and they said, here's what we see and here's what we believe. And they, they put those documents. And that's why, you know, you had one in 1644 and then you had another one in 1689, mostly to deal with the, uh, the principle and the controversy between infant baptism. 
That's a big part of it. That's why the, the one that we're using actually has in the back, it takes, a stand, it takes a stand on what baptism is. So it was a document. It had to be altered, right? It had to be adjusted. And it's still a man-made document. However, I also believe that it's something that we can say it's based upon what the Bible actually teaches, not what man wants the Bible to teach. I've read some articles of faith, statement of faith, that would literally make your head spin and say, where is that? Now, that doctrine, supererogation, we might not be able to find it in the pages of Scripture exactly and say, well, here's where it is. But we are, we're taking the principle and realizing that there is within society today, there's still this, this principle of believing in our own righteousness. So it really is something we have to consider. So really the two main questions we're going to talk about today, and I've already, we've pretty much covered these, but uh, we'll just ask ourselves the question, and this is more directed at this. Why does the Roman Catholic Church believe that a person can gather up so many good works that they can be distributed to other people? So really I'm interested in the why. Now that may require you to know a little bit more about how the Catholic Church is structured, what the Catholic Church, how it had its foundation. How far back does this go? Anybody have an idea of why? <laughs> to um, the Armenian thought that I, I can have a part in my own salvation, you know, like Jennifer said last week, what's your view of God mm-hmm. versus man? Yep. Okay, that's good. The how question is easier than the why. How do they do it? But why? Part of this does go back to understanding the reformers, and part of it does go back to understanding the Reformation. They used to sell it. What's that? They used to sell it? Right. I mean, they sell. What did you say? Indulgence. Selling of indulgences. Do you know what that encompassed, the selling of indulgences? Just a Anybody know how it works? Flyover. Just a flyover, yeah. So there might have been some profit in it. <laughs> I mean, if I could reach that standard and be so holy that I can sell you a few of mine, that's a pretty good side deal, right? You say, that's a, that's a horrible accusation. I'm just telling you that it's the truth. You could, you could sell them. People would buy them. I may not have an answer either, but you can ask it. <laughs> but who determines that somebody uh, arrived at this level of? Uh, I would imagine it came from the fathers and the, the high the priests of the Catholic Church. At some point, <laughs> those who were setting the standards. Now, the Catholic Church would tell you that all of these things were established by Peter, because they believe Peter was the first pope. The lowest of basis 
the traditions of their books. Right, and that's why the question came up that if you're talking to an individual and you say, well, the Bible doesn't say that, they might respond back to you and they're not talking about the Bible. They're talking about the traditions of the books, the Catholic documents. There are, the Catholics that I have dealt with personally over the years put a lot more stock in the Catholic books and the traditions of the Catholic Church than they do the Scripture. You, you're honestly, you're, and this, take this the right way. I'm not saying we don't argue from Scripture, but you're not, you're not arguing on a level playing field. Just like when they use certain terms, the terms are the same words you're using, but the definition is different. What Martin Luther, and by the way, if you, if you don't read history and you don't know anything about Martin Luther, don't, don't say Martin Luther was a perfect man. And don't say Martin Luther had everything exactly right. He had some issues. There were some struggles. There were some things in his life too. He wasn't God. But what he was doing by, by, by placing those 95 theses on the wall, the door, what he was doing is he was taking offense to the things that the Catholic Church, for, for lack of better terms, what they had wrong. And he was having to use some of the same terminology. So you could think you're having a conversation about justification with a Catholic individual, and you could think you're talking on the same terms and the same whys and hows, but often you're not. Their understanding of how a man is justified is different than what your understanding of a justification is. So the only way you get there is you get there because somewhere along the line, you've got to, you have to veer off of what is right. Now, I haven't done enough, I have not done enough way, way back when the first establishment of the Catholic Church, but I have heard people say, okay, and again, I, I hear things and I don't know whether I agree with it or not because I don't have the basis to look at it. I've heard people say that, again, it's not my opinion, I've heard theologians say that the Catholic Church, when it originally started, had the right understandings about things, and they went <coughs> off the path. Now, I don't know that, I don't know that to be fact, or not, so I can't say I agree with it. All I can tell you is that if anybody, whether it's Catholic or whatever denomination that's teaching some form of supererogation that says, hey, I can reach God's standard, is wrong. Do you have any idea historically when supererogation came? I really don't. That I have heard, that that was a later, a much later. Well, we know that at least the 1600s, because that's, that's when the confession writers thought it needed to be handled, it needed to be dealt with. And, the, and I think the thing that we often, we, maybe, I, maybe we don't always think about this, these kind of things don't just happen like a light switch. It, it's, it's not that one day you walk into your church and everything is solid doctrinally, and then you walk in the next Sunday and everything changed. It's subtle things. 
It's, it's a subtle teaching that just someone puts a little bit of a different spin on it. Like, I, my ears always perk up when I hear somebody say, well, what they meant to say was. So they, they're actually reading scripture and they say, what, what the writer meant to write was. No, it's pretty much what God wanted to write unless you have a version of what's called scripture that really has done nothing more than just turned it into a giant paraphrase and then you've got some big dangers there. But it's not like a light switch. It's subtle changes to, okay, here's what this means. Here's what, here's what this belief means. Yeah, good. Yeah. You know, what good works can I do or what can I pay or offer? Yep, good observation. So, you know, it's not just the Catholic Church. It's Absolutely. Beginning, yeah, and they're just one that actually in their books, it's there. So you could get their books and there's, here it is. Here's what this means. But you're right. Man, I, I, my, the position I take is this type of thing's been going on since man was created. Because every time, every time God commanded people to bring a sacrifice and bring an offering, he, there was always a reminder to what they were doing as opposed to what God was accepting. I mean, you go all the way back to the story of Cain and Abel. I, I truly believe that he, he brought what he considered his very best, but yet it wasn't right. So, uh, this is a question, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. Into that. And yeah. So I'm finding that some people believe that there will be a time when sacrifices of animals will be yes. part of that again. Yes. So is that kind of tied into this? Are they thinking of that as a, a good work again? Like, it, I didn't know I, that was a thing until last week. But. <laughs> it, it, it could be. But I used to accept that and just take that for what it, and didn't even, it didn't even stagger me like I heard that I heard that from a small child about when all things are taking place that there was going to be a return back to the sacrifices and return back to animal sacrifices because of the rebuilding of the temple and everything was coming back and I said well yeah that's what's going to happen whether that was connected to this idea I don't I don't know but I think it goes back to the conversation that there's this this principle of doing enough good works or meeting that. Because in your study of dispensation, whether dispensationists will tell you this or not, they have to admit they believe that whatever dispensation that was, certain dispensations, they were saved by works. They have to, agree, they have to admit that. Now they'll say, no, 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 it wasn't. Or they'll start to give you a little bit, of, they'll give you a little bit of pushback and they'll say, well, yes, Abraham was saved. Abraham, yeah, because Abraham, when Jesus says Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Okay, we'll give you that, but those good works, he had to, he, that's what saved him. Can somebody get the door for me, Skylar, please? Sorry. Um, so there could be a connection between the two. And that's a whole other end times and the rapture, and that's, that's wait till we get to that. That'll be fun. <laughs> Any other questions? Anything else? 
So I guess we've kind of already established why it's a dangerous doctrine, right? I think when we think about the dangers, um, I think it can be a dangerous doctrine that we, we pick up. And it, it can infiltrate our churches, and it can infiltrate us to where we start to believe that um, this can have an influence on our church as well. All right? All right, well, let's stop there for this morning. And so we'll take a few minutes of fellowship, and then we'll come right back at 1115. And uh, good, good conversations and good discussions again. And hopefully this has been, been helpful and profitable to you this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we just thank you for your word and its clarity. And Lord, I do pray that you would uh, just continue through the Spirit to guide us and direct us into proper doctrine, into proper teaching. Uh, Lord, that we would not be tossed to and fro, that we would remain steadfast and sure. Uh, Lord, we know that the number of doctrines and seemingly new doctrines that are arriving on the scene are almost occurring daily. And Father, I pray that we would be increasing in our not only our faith but in our knowledge of your word so that we are able to recognize that which is false Uh, lord i pray that you'll be with us now as we prepare for the morning worship today Uh, father may christ be glorified and if there is one that uh, needs to be brought to repentance and conversion that lord you would through the spirit make them willing to believe that they may see the truth of who jesus christ is we thank you we praise you it's in christ's name i pray amen All right, we'll see you at 11.15.